Welcome to the Christian Combatives Monday Megasode. The purpose of these Megasodes is to mirror all of the YouTube and Rumble content up on the podcast. All the audio is preserved and presented here in its original and sometimes substandard form as it appeared in the video from start to finish, music included. The titles of these videos are listed in the podcast description. Today's episode includes, Is This Sin Going to Send Me to Hell? Jesus and the God of Wrath? Question 01, Dreams and Visions? Question 02, Is Masturbation a Sin? And question 03, Should I Tithe? Enjoy. One of the most popular questions to ask, apparently, is... Is this sin going to send me to hell? Well, let's talk about it. So nine times out of ten, when somebody asks me, is this sin of mine, this sin that I commit, this sin that, you know, happens all the time, is this sin going to send me to hell? What they're really asking me, they're asking for permission for sin. They want me to tell them that this sin is not, not so serious, that you've got other sins, you've got those, uh, you've got those mortal sins. You've got those sins where you kill someone or, you know, you do something really, really awful and those sins send you to hell. But hey, this sin, it's not hurting anyone. That's one I hear. Everything in moderation. There's another one I hear a lot. Uh, so is this sin going to send me to hell? And you could substitute in whatever you'd like to, whatever vice you'd like to, whatever addictive thought or behavior or, you know, something that people don't want to give up. So they asking, they're asking me for, for, for permission to sin, basically, as though I could grant it. Uh, but the question is really, they want, they want to minimize, minimize this sin. So maybe other sins send them to hell, but maybe not this sin. So is this sin going to send me to hell? Now, if I want to be really technical, I could answer either yes or no. And depending on how I answer, neither answer is really the complete picture. So, is this sin going to send me to hell? If I answer yes, this is what I mean. Your sin creates a disconnect, a distance between you and God. With your sin, you act or you think in rebellion against God. Now, as a result of being in rebellion against God, you put yourself in the camp of those who are in rebellion against God. Well, if we, if we read scripture, we find out that hell is a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. And these are, the, these are the opponents of God. So when we reject those teachings of God, the laws of God, the commands of God, how you should live, all good things, when we reject these things, we are rejecting allegiance with God. We are putting ourselves in the camp of the devil and his angels. And as a result, we suffer their same fate. At least that's what would happen if that was the end of the story. So yes, any sin you commit, in fact, you're born with sin, any sin about your person whatsoever is a damnable sin. 
So again, the question, will this sin send me to hell? What if I answer no? Well, if I say, no, this sin won't send you to hell, I could be talking about multiple things. I could be saying, no, because you're a Christian, you're forgiven. Not that you have free reign to sin as you please, because again, that's a rejection of, of God and a rejection of God's things. But as a Christian, your sin is paid for, your debt is paid for. Now, the other aspect of saying, no, this sin doesn't send you to hell, with that Christianity in mind, another aspect is, it could be argued that it isn't the sin itself which sends you to hell, because everybody has sin. But the reason that some people go to hell and other people don't is because some people take hold of that forgiveness that was won for them. So, John 3.16 and other verses, Christ died for everybody. The death of Christ is enough to pay for all of the sins of all of mankind. But some people decide, for one reason or another, that they will reject that payment of God and decide that they would like to suffer, they would like to pay the bill, they would like to suffer the consequences for their sin instead of the, instead of the forgiveness that they would get if, if they just allowed Christ to, to pay for their sin. I mean, again, Christ already paid for their sin, but they do have the freedom to say, nope, nope, I don't want Christ's forgiveness, I don't want anything to do with Christ, I want to just leave me with my sin and leave me with those consequences. So if I say, no, your sin doesn't send you to hell, I could be saying that it isn't your sin that sends you to hell, but your lack of repentance, your, in, your unwillingness or inability to let God just pay for it himself. I tried to think of a good analogy for this, and analogies are always terrible, so I'll give you this terrible analogy. You are a bull in a china shop. Whether by accident or on purpose, you start breaking plates. You start smashing saucers and dishes and cups and, you know, those little, those little glass figurines and stuff. You start just absolutely wrecking the place. Well, here's the thing. This china shop has a policy. You break it, you buy it. So you are responsible financially for every single piece of broken merchandise in that shop that's, that's a result of you, whether it's by accident or whether it's malicious and intentional on purpose. So whether your sin is accidental or whether your sin is intentional, whether it's a sin that it's like, I can't stop thinking about this thing, I know it's wrong, but I can't stop thinking about it. Uh, or it's a sin where you just, you know what you're doing. You know, you know it's wrong and you just don't care. You just, let's, let's, let's sin, you know, full speed ahead. Regardless, you're responsible for all of those as the bull in the china shop. The other thing to consider is some of these items in the china shop are worth more than others. So while every single sin, every single thing you break in the china shop, every single one of these adds to, adds to the debt that you owe, some of those things add more or add more significantly. So while some sins you could say, oh, well, this isn't hurting anybody. This is just me doing, you know, whatever it is. It's not hurting anybody. I'm doing it in moderation. Uh, and you compare yourself, your sin to another sin, which is 
oh, that's extreme. That's really, that's like just destroying someone's life. Um, there is that difference. That difference does exist. There are sins that cause more harm than others. There are things in this china shop that you're breaking that cost more than the other things that you're breaking. At the end of the day, however, you're trying to leave that china shop and you owe money. You owe a debt for everything that you've broken, whether it's big or small, expensive, inexpensive, accident or on purpose. It isn't the fact that you broke all those things because you break it, you buy it. But the fact that you owe money, the fact that you have no way to pay this debt because you're a bull in a china shop, you forgot your wallet at home, right? Uh, the fact that you can't pay this debt, that's what's gonna get you thrown in in bowl prison, I, t I told you, analogies are terrible and this is not a good one. But that the fact that you cannot pay your debt or you're not willing to pay your debt is the reason that you're going to go to, to go to, you're gonna to go to, to prison, that you're going to be punished. Yes, it is your sin that led you into this position, but now that you're in this position, somehow that debt needs to be paid. So that debt is either paid by someone else who has a wallet, Christ, for example, who dies on the cross for all of your sins or who pays off your entire everything that you owe after everything you've broken, who pays off your entire debt. Either he pays it off or it's held to your account and you will never pay it off, but you will continue to owe that amount. So the question again will I go to hell for this sin? Or will this sin send me to hell? Yes and no. It's because of the sin that you owe debt. But it's because of the fact that you owe debt that you have to go and have those consequences for that debt. So, simple solution. Christ died for you. That's, that's the solution. The debt is paid for Christ dies to pay your debt. Now, if you choose to reject that payment, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? You're not gonna pay it yourself. What are you thinking? It's free and it's not escaping, you know, it's not escaping judgment. It's not that the debt is never being paid. The debt is paid. It's just not paid by you. So that's it. You have sin. It is your unforgiveness, your unrepentance, your state of not being forgiven. That's why you would have to go to you would have to go to hell. So, if someone pays your debt, like Christ, who dies on the cross and pays for your sin, and you say, when it's time to collect that debt, you say, "Hey, God died for me." He paid for my debt. Guess what? You're covered. You're covered. You trust that God paid for your paid for your sin. And because you trust that God paid for your sin, you don't want to sin all the time. My atheist friends inform me that the God of the Old Testament is the main one. 
he's the one who's wrathful and you know does all that stuff that makes people unhappy and tells people that they're wrong if that's the case what is Jesus doing flipping tables hitting people with whips and pouring money all over the place in the temple let's find out chapter 19, you've got one of the accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple. And he does this in a few of the different Gospels, but in Luke 19, it pretty much all boils down to about two sentences, where he goes into the temple, he cleanses it, drives everyone out, and says, hey, you guys have uh, turned this house of this house of God into a den of, den of thieves. And the, uh, the, the deal that a lot of people have is they, they think of this Jesus as this, uh, this nice, happy, clappy, uh, happy-go-lucky, would never offend anybody, never talks about anything offensive, never lays down the law, never really, you know, gets into it with these, with these other people. That Jesus is, is, is the nice Jesus. The, uh, the Jesus who wouldn't disagree or hurt a, hurt a fly. That kind of Jesus. I mean, of course, as a Christian, you know that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. So God is no more wrathful or compassionate in the Old or the New Testament. It's the same, same dude. Um, but why exactly is Jesus doing all of these things in the temple today? Well, if you look at the history of the temple, you've got this, the temple's divided physically into these different areas, these different places where different groups of people were able to worship. You got the Holy of Holies, which is the, you know, the centermost part of the temple, and the high priest goes in there on a very rare occasion and, you know, can perform special duties there very rarely. You've got the court of the priests, this is where the priests hang out and they do their thing. You've got the court of men, the court of the women. These are where the Jews worship. Um, uh, and then you've got the court of the Gentiles, which is kind of like this circular area around the entire outside building of the temple. But it's legitimate. It's part of the temple. It's part of the court. Well, so this is where these guys are setting up shop as, uh, as money changers and selling, you know, uh, doves and, and sheep and pigs. Well, probably not pigs. And, uh, well, yeah, you know, doves and sheep and... and things that you would use for animal sacrifices so people don't have to bring them from home, right? Well, Jesus goes here and he sees that this part of the temple, this court of the Gentiles, has been turned into a place where people can make, you know, can make a quick buck, right? This is, uh, this is no longer a place where the Gentiles are free to worship. God specifically designed this area for the non-Jews to be able to worship God. And they can't worship God. Instead, you got these people who are cheating each other out of money as money changers or gouging prices or, you know, what have you. So immediately, the, the thought we think when Jesus says that this is a den of thieves, a den of robbers, house of robbers, we think that this is Jesus talking about, you know, the outrageous prices that are being charged, the outrageous rates of, uh, of money exchange, things like that. And that very, mel that very well may be true. You know, these people are, have turned the temple into something that they can use for profit. But the bigger, the bigger thing here, the bigger thing that is being stolen, the worst act of these robbers is that they have stolen this place for the Gentiles to worship. They are robbers, not just in the sense that they take people's money, but in the sense that they take people's ability to worship. 
they, they, they take this area that was designed for the Gentiles to worship, and they stole that from them. Well, in the modern-day context, we don't have these separation of areas in the church. Uh, we've got everybody can approach the altar, and everybody, I mean, that's the, that's the equivalent of the Holy of Holies. You've got God who, who is there present at the altar in church, in the body and blood, uh, uh, during communion. So you can approach God directly in church, physically in church, uh, and you don't have to be the high priest once a year to do it. So you don't have this division between the Jews and the Gentiles that you had in the, in the Old Testament, but you still have these cases where people have tried to take, have tried to take the temple, have tried to take the church and turn it into something that it's not. And they've tried to distract from worshiping God and praying to God and getting these gifts from God and they've taken away the ability for people to do this and replace it with something else. Now, this is what you see when you have, here's a couple of examples, by no means an extensive list, when you have people who want the church to be an entertainment venue. It's fine for you to praise God in a way that's entertaining. You know, some of those hymns are really thumping. But if your idea is that you're going to turn, you're going to turn this church into a concert and that you're not going to allow the gifts of God and the Word of God to be that thing which is, you know, the center that is given to the people, then you've just brought a bunch of filthy animals into the court of the Gentiles. You've just stolen, you've stolen the ability to worship and the ability to receive God's gifts from people. So you make the church God's dwelling place. You make the church into a den of robbers when you rob people of their ability to worship God and their ability to receive God's gifts and God's promises. You also do this, I'm not, you in, you in general, you as a general term. People also do this, turn church into a den of robbers when they fixate too much about money, when, when getting the most members and getting the biggest church and the best church, when that is more important to them than delivering those promises of God. This, this pushes out giving out the gifts of God and instead turns it into a business model. Again, robbing people of their ability to worship and receive God's gifts. Those also who turn the church into a den of robbers are those who teach false doctrine. The people who go in and either try to scratch itching ears by telling you just things you want to hear or withholding the law and the gospel that God has given you. You are stealing from the people of God who want to worship when you give them something else instead. When you give them something inferior, you are taking their time and their money in many cases, and you are taking this gift of God, this gift of word and sacrament away from them. So yeah, Jesus has every right to not be happy. Jesus has every right. In fact, the high priest should have been doing this themselves. Jesus has every right to go into the temple and to make sure that people have access to the gifts of God. And that's what church should be about right now. Receiving the gifts of God and having a place for you to pray, praise, and worship Him. Worship Him who sees you. Well, it's time for donuts. You have a happy day.
How can God use dreams or visions for his will? How can God use dreams or visions for his will? Now, immediately, immediately the thing that comes to my mind is the role of the Old Testament prophet. And this isn't just anybody, you know, wandering around saying, oh, I got a word from God. Oh, I have this thing, you know, that's on my heart or whatever. And this is just, you know, I'm going to prophesy it. But in the Old Testament, there was a specific role, like the high priest was a specific role. The king was a specific role. The prophet was somebody who was selected by God to speak for God or to be that intermediary. Uh, in the same way a priest would offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people, a prophet would deliver God's word from God to his people. Examples we have like Moses. He goes up on Mount Sinai and he talks with God and he brings these, he brings these words to the, to the people, to the Israelites. Um, uh, we have other examples like Elijah. Well, we've got tons of examples. Uh, we've got Elijah and Elisha. We've got these people who actually confront you know, uh, confront people of other beliefs like the, um, like the, the demon-worshipping Baal, priests of Baal, uh, and how their God is put to the test against, uh, against the, the, the one true God. And you have this role of a prophet who receives these messages and delivers them to his people, or delivers, delivers them to God's people, rather. And in some instances, uh, in some instances, God talks directly to him. Again, Moses is a perfect example of this. God is speaking to him face to face, as it were. And, uh, and this communication is going back and forth. And, and then Moses, has a, he has a conversation. He goes down the mountain um, and, and he delivers that message. But there are other examples where there are prophetic visions and dreams. Um, Daniel is an example of this. Daniel receives these dreams or he helps to translate other people's dreams. Um, and these are, these are examples where God does use dreams to communicate, uh, to communicate messages. Um, Joseph is another example. Is it, I'm getting them confused now. Let me see. Uh, Joseph translating dreams. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, I don't want to get the, I don't want to get them mixed up. I have in my head all of these different, all of these different prophets. But if you look up the story of Joseph, Joseph actually, so this is Joseph and his, you know, and his multicolored coat, or however you want to translate that. Uh, Joseph interprets the dreams of the Pharaoh. Joseph interprets uh, interprets these dreams um, uh, that are basically well. He interprets dreams. He has dreams before that, like before he even gets thrown into the pit by his brother, God communicates to him with these dreams um, about his brothers all bowing down to him and, and, uh, and like, uh, like shears of wheat or, or sheaves of wheat or something like that bowing down to him. But then later on, uh, Joseph isn't talking about his own dreams anymore, but rather he's talking with Pharaoh and with others about their dreams. So Pharaoh will give this example and he'll, and he'll say, um, uh, uh, let's see, Genesis, uh, I'm going to open this up right now. Genesis 41. If you want to look up um, Pharaoh's dreams, uh, Genesis 41 is where you're going to find this. Um, okay, so this is an example of a dream. Uh, Genesis 41. After two whole years, I'm reading from the ESV. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed on the reed grass. And behold, seven cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows in the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. Uh, and then he falls asleep and he has another dream and so, so on and so forth. It's a great story. You should read it. It's uh, Genesis 41. 
Um, but yeah, so so the the chief cupbearer to, to Pharaoh basically says, "Hey, I was in prison. When I was in prison, there was this guy called Joseph, and he was interpreting dreams. Uh, and what he interpreted actually turned out to be accurate. Um, so Pharaoh goes and he gets and he gets Joseph, who's been languishing in prison this entire time because the the cupbearer forgot about him uh, until now." Uh, and then Joseph interprets a dream. So in this way, uh, God communicates to to Pharaoh and God communicates to Joseph um, that there's going to be these there's going to be this time of abundance and then there's going to be a time of drought and famine. So God communicates in this way through dreams. Um, again, remember Joseph had dreams. He was given dreams by God uh, directly at a previous time, uh, and then he interpreted these dreams. He said, these are all my brothers bowing down to me, and um, they didn't like that. And then later on, God's communicating through somebody else's dreams, and then uh, Joseph is acting like a prophet to translate these dreams, basically, to explain these dreams. Um, but yeah, so Old Testament is full of all kinds of prophets. Uh, you got major prophets, minor prophets, but any, you've got this role of a prophet. This is somebody that God specifically takes and sets aside and says, guess what? You're going to be the one who interprets these dreams and these visions. Um, fast forward to our modern day context. God does not still have that role of prophet. There are, you know, you can say, okay, well, there's modern day kings. Uh, and then if you want to talk about priests, there's a priesthood of all believers. And then, of course, there's out of those are the ones who are called to, um, to, to, to shepherd the flock. And those are, those are your pastors. Those are your ordained ministers. Um, but this role of prophet doesn't, doesn't exist in the same way. It doesn't exist in the same way that it did in the Old Testament. And we find evidence of this uh, in Hebrews chapter 1. This is in the New Testament. Um, it begins with this, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Uh, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So in this instance, we have uh, God's telling us in the book of Hebrews that, yeah, yeah, in the Old Testament, totally, you had this role of prophet. You had these dudes who were like specifically chosen by God to speak for God. I love the Hawaiian pigeon translation of the Bible because the word prophet is translated, if I remember correctly, the word prophet is translated as the people that talk for God. And it's, it's like, yeah, that's it. That's exactly what it is. It's the prophet is the role of the person who is given to, to talk for God. Now, we can talk about other, other ways that the word prophecy is used. To prophesy often means, like if you're reading scripture, uh, in, in one sense of the word, you are prophesying. You are giving God's word to God's people when you read scripture aloud. This is not the same thing as you are getting special visions from God, and then God tells you how to interpret these visions, and then God tells you to deliver these to specific people. That office doesn't exist anymore. Um, but it is very possible. Um, so here's here's probably here I'm reading into the question a little bit again the question was how can God use dreams or visions for his will well God can communicate uh, things that are going to happen or God can maybe communicate a warning or something like that uh, and in the past we have God using dreams and visions for his will in in scripture to kind of give us a fuller picture of scripture and to demonstrate God's glory uh, in the modern day is it possible for God to give people dreams or visions or make people kind of have a, have a certain thought or something like that? It is possible, yes. And there are examples, plenty of, it, of examples of people who kind of 
kind of report this. Now, that being said, that does not then make them a prophet in the sense of the Old Testament, that you should go and say, oh, please, prophet, tell me what's going to happen, you know, are we going to have a famine for the next however many years, or how is this war going to go, or this election, or, you know, whatever it is. They don't necessarily have, have the role of a prophet. But God communicates most directly with his people with the words of Scripture. This is what it says in Hebrews 1. In these last days, he's communicated to us through, you know, through Christ. And Christ has communicated to us through the words that were written down, given down to us in Scripture. So, do you, if you have a dream, again, this is me reading into the question, kind of thinking where, where the, the person is, is coming from. If they, they, they have a dream and they think, wow, this is a really weird dream. I wonder if it means something. I wonder if God's communicating something to me. Maybe. Maybe. But here's the thing. You have no way of knowing unless you can test it against something that is absolutely sure from God. So if you have a dream, let me give you, well, yeah, let me give you an example. Um, if you have a dream and you're saying, ah, I want to go to seminary. I want to go to seminary and I want to be a pastor. I want to be a priest. Maybe God is, is making you just, you're, you're thinking about this a lot and it's something that you you start kind of seeing indications. You, what, I, I don't want to get into the details of what you see or what you think you see, but say you've got this indication. You're like, okay, I think God is trying to communicate to me that I am called to be a, a, a minister, a pastor. Um, so the first thing you want to do is if you think that you're getting a vision or a dream or a word from God, the very first thing you want to do is you want to check that against God's word. Don't just run with it. Don't just say, ah, oh, I had a dream last night that I'm going to be a, you know, I'm going to be a millionaire. Therefore, it's going to be true. So let me just, you know, I don't buy a new house because I know I'm going to have those millions soon. It, no, go and look at scripture. Uh, if you've got a, a dream, or if you've got an inclination towards the, the office of the Holy Ministry, pastor, go and read First and Second Timothy. Go and read Titus. Go read the pastoral epistles. Go read where God says this is, you know, this is what you have to. If somebody desires to be an overseer, if somebody desires to be a, a bishop, an episcopos, a, a pastor, a priest, whatever you want to call it, somebody desires this office then they should fulfill these, these things. And if you're reading it and you're saying, oh, wow, I do not fulfill those roles. If you're like, I am not the husband of one wife. I've got like six wives and I'm, you know, I, I'm contentious and I'm angry and I'm fighting with everybody. And, you know, then maybe that's not, maybe that's just a dream. Maybe you just had some, <laughs> you just had some bad, uh, bad takeout uh, last night. Or maybe there's just something stressing you out in your mind. Maybe a dream is just a dream. If you, if you think your dream is maybe a prophecy or a vision from God, um, go to the Bible. Go to Scripture because you know that's where God has communicated with you. Go to Scripture, read it, uh, read everything relevant, read everything in context around that those verses that you look up. Go and talk to your pastor, say, um, hey, I'm wondering about this thing. Yeah, go talk to your pastor. That's you know the rule of the day. I'm wondering about this thing. Um, this is what I was reading in scripture. This is what I was dreaming. Um, and hopefully you have a good solid pastor and he'll, you know, and he'll be some good, good wisdom for you. So how can God use dreams and visions for his will? He, well, he in the past has communicated those things which are now communicated to us in scripture. In the past, he communicated those things, those messages to Israel, those messages to, to Pharaoh. 
uh, those messages to Joseph. Um, but it, now God communicates to us primarily. God communicates to us through Scripture, absolutely through Scripture. And if God communicates to us in other ways, if God gives us comfort and faith and hope and these things that, that we receive from, from you know, Lord's Supper and baptism and hearing Scripture and praying and things like that, and that's fantastic too. Um, but you want to be really careful that you're not acting as though you are in that role of the prophet. Um, and you want to be sure that the messages you're receiving, I want to say, that these are biblical, that these are Christian, that these are in, in concord with Scripture, with a proper understanding of Scripture. Um, because that's a very dangerous thing to say, is to say, I'm getting words from God, I'm getting visions from God. And then you find out that you've been telling somebody something that God has not been telling you. Uh, there was very harsh punishment for that in the Old Testament, and that's because it's a very, very serious thing to get wrong. So I, be, be, I, I want to say, I don't want to say impossible, but I want to say be so extremely cautious about this topic that you are constantly in prayer and specifically in the Word of God. You are specifically in Scripture and specifically in communication with a trustworthy, wise, faithful, educated Christian or group of Christians. So yeah, prophecies and visions. Be super duper careful, guys. Um, and stick in scripture and talk to your pastor. Oh boy, you're sending me the fun questions already. I can't wait to get into these. <laughs> All right, so I warned you about the sensitive questions and sensitive natures. If you watched this far uh, and questions about sexuality are going to be very uncomfortable for you, feel free to turn off the video. Uh, you're not going to miss anything. I'm just talking about Jesus all the time and what the Bible says. You've had your warning. Here's the next question. Question number two. Is masturbation sinful? The Bible doesn't clearly state it is or isn't, and one example in the Old Testament is used. Didn't that guy Onan? Uh, Onan. Uh, didn't Onan die because uh, he refused to father a child, not because he spilled his seed? This is asked by Anonymous, of course. Um, all right. So the question uh, he re he references this guy called Onan. If you're not familiar with it, it's from Genesis chapter 38. I would, again, encourage you to read it because reading scripture is good and Genesis is a lot of fun. Um, Genesis 38 is weird. Um, there are a lot of sinful people uh, in the Bible. So not everything that everybody does in the Bible, excuse me, not everything that everybody does in the Bible should be emulated. 
you know, David killed, uh, David committed adultery and murdered. We shouldn't emulate that. We, we can emulate his faithfulness and his repentance, but we shouldn't emulate, you know, he's not perfect. The only perfect person in the Bible is Jesus. Sorry, just, let's cut, cut to the chase. The only perfect person in the Bible is God. Uh, the only perfect uh, man in the Bible is, is Jesus and Adam before Adam and Eve before they sinned. But Genesis 38, you've got the story of Judah and Tamar, or Tamar, and they have kids. They have like three sons. Judah sees this, uh, he, he gets attracted to this Canaanite woman, and there's already problems with that. And then they have a bunch, they have three, three sons, and then there's a bunch of problems with, with that and this requirement to have, you know, if you're in these, um, uh, in this, uh, in the, at this time, if, 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 uh, if one of your brothers were to die uh, before he could father children, then it was your job to continue that lineage and to take his wife. And it's this whole complicated thing that you don't have to do anymore because you are not an Israelite uh, and you're not living in the society under these specific cultural rules that God gave these specific people and not you. Um, but anyways, you have this whole confusing, confusing situation where um, it all... People really focus on this one section about Onan. And Onan goes and he, and he takes... Uh, uh, let me just make sure that I've got the names right. Um, yes. Okay. So he so he goes to his uh, he goes to his dead his his brother dies. He goes to his brother's he goes to his brother's wife. His job is to provide offspring for his wife for for that dead brother. He has sexual intercourse with this woman, uh, and then he he makes sure that uh, the sexual intercourse does not result in offspring. Now. A lot of people use this verse specifically to talk about uh, either contraception or or masturbation, um, and that's not really the point of of this section. If you actually read the the, the section in its entirety, you've got a bunch of bad people doing a bunch of bad stuff, and one of the bad things in particular is this guy was taking advantage of his dead brother's wife and was not fulfilling his role and was not you know providing and raising a child like he was supposed to instead he was just being uh a, he was being a sinner he was instead he was being a rotten you know a rotten dude uh she doesn't okay and then it just gets it gets even weirder from there so genesis 38 go and read it if you want to but um the point uh, the point in that passage is not is not talking about uh specifically talking about masturbation um, so the question, so we can, we can basically cut out this whole, this whole part of the question referring to Onan. That's talking about something else. Um, he was not killed because he spilled his seed. He was killed because he failed to fulfill his promise and because he was being a lecherous dirtbag who was taking advantage of a woman. Um, and okay. Yeah. So I won't get into that any further. Suffice it to say, it's not specifically relevant to this question. Uh, this question is whether or not it's sinful for somebody to sexually pleasure themselves. And this gets in, I, I, I did warn you multiple times that this is going to be a weird sort of thing. People ask these weird questions and it's totally okay because uh, let's let you, because <laughs> they're worth, they're worth trying to answer. So there's, uh, I see this, there's actually, there's actually sort of two, um, two aspects to this question that I want to that I want to try to address. Uh, the first aspect is the most obvious one. So for this, I want to turn to Matthew chapter five, verses twenty-seven and twenty-eight. And this is this is Jesus talking. This is after he's talking. Um, he gave the uh, the beatitudes, and he's you know he's given. It's this great 
Matthew chapter 5. This is a great long section. Um, it, Jesus covers a lot of stuff. He says this, starting at verse 27. You have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So with this verse in particular, uh, we, can look at, we can look at this topic and we can say, um, I mean, obviously, is this, is this a sin of lust? Is this a sin of lust of the mind? Even though physically no other person is involved, uh, is this a, a, an instance where a person is sinning? They are committing adultery, essentially. And I mean, the topic can be raised. They can say, well, but what if I'm not married? Well, then the person that you're thinking of is not your wife, and that's adultery. You know, sexual, the sexual interaction with a person who is not your rightful spouse is adultery. And Jesus, ex Jesus explains that this extends even to, even to the mind, even to the to, to the matter of your mind. Um, so you can commit adultery with just your thoughts, and of course the actions that spring forward from your thoughts. Um, so then this comes so. In the, in the context of somebody's unmarried or somebody's thinking about something, somebody who's not their wife or who's not their husband, then yes, it is absolutely sinful. There's no question about that whatsoever. Uh, and that is an action that springs forth from, uh, from that sinful, um, from those sinful thoughts. It's a sinful action. It's a sinful action because it is it, derived, it's the conclusion from a sinful thought. Um, now, what if it is in reference to somebody's own wife? What if it's a person, it's a husband thinking about their wife or a wife thinking about their husband? Uh, and in this situation, um, I've, seen, I've seen multiple arguments either way, uh, and I'll give you the most convincing ones. So the argument that it's not a sin is that uh, if you were thinking about another person, then it would be adultery. Therefore, if you're thinking about the person who's your spouse, then it's not adultery, and it's something else, I guess? It's something... Yeah, but I because I mean, you know, if you're if you're if you're married and you're thinking about your your husband or your wife, that's a good thing. Um, if you think about them, you know, romantically or, or or sexually or emotionally or whatever, this is you know thinking about them as your spouse, as your rightfully married spouse. This is a good thing. The argument against that is that the thing in your mind is this fantasy, and it's not actually your your spouse. It's this fantasy where you have complete control of a situation. You're imagining everything going on. Uh, and instead of interacting with your wife, instead of interacting with your husband, you're, you're going back to, I, I, somebody explained it like this, they said, you're going back to kind of the state of singleness. You're going back to this instance where it's purely a, a selfish desire, purely a selfish action. You're not, it's not a cooperative thing. You're not sharing, you're not being two people being one flesh. Instead, you're thinking completely about yourself I, well, you're thinking your your intentions are completely for your for yourself. It is completely self motivated. It's not for the sake of anyone but yourself. Uh, and in that sense, um, this even if even if it's based off of your your spouse, it's still something where it's um, it's this you're actually kind of rejecting your spouse uh, and instead substituting in this fantasy um, and this this idea. Um, and that's, and that's why that would be, that's why that would be sinful. And if that's the correct understanding of it, then absolutely that's sinful. Uh, if the correct understanding of it is, oh no, it's actually your wife. You're thinking about it, then I, I guess it would, 
unless there's other factors I'm not saying, I guess it would not be sinful. Um, and it's complicated because, I mean, as the anonymous asker mentioned, it's not something that's specifically talked about in the Bible. Um, and in cases like this, where you're, where you're worried, you're saying, oh no, you know, uh, you know, is it sinful? Is it not sinful? I'm not sure. Um, some things that are important to keep in mind is what is your intent? Is your intent to glorify God? Is your intent to love your neighbor? In this case, love your, your wife or your husband and by so doing, love God? Um, have you been doing something that is the opposite of that? Have you been doing something that takes away from your love for God? Have you been dishonoring God, dishonoring your, your spouse? Um, in those cases, um, then yes, you should, you should repent of that and you should know that Christ died for you and that sin is, for, is forgivable. It's not an excuse to sin, but it's forgivable. So in those cases where you're not really sure if something's a sin or not, do your best. I mean, read scripture, pray, talk to your pastor, and then at the end of all of that, do your best to try to avoid sin and at the same time know that nothing you do will be perfect and that you still need to repent and receive forgiveness for everything. Don't get so fixated on this one thing that you say, oh, this is the one sin in my life, and if I conquer this, you know, I don't have to worry about other sin. Repent of all of your sin. Get forgiven for all of your sin. This is one of the many, the many things that you need to be forgiven for. So don't get hyper fixated on this one thing. I know it's really, it's, it's, it's really common. This is actually a fairly common question um, that pastors have to deal with. Uh, and I know it's, really easy to get hyper fixated on a, on a single on a single sin um, and and the, the the danger in that is thinking oh once I get past this sin then you know I'm settled don't don't fall into that mindset try I mean scripture pastor pray and do your best to avoid sin and repent anyway because or repent of any sins you know repent for the sins you know and repent for the sins you don't know if there's a sin that's really, really on your heart, go to your pastor and say, I would like to receive absolution. Can we do private confession and absolution? And then confess those sins in private with your pastor that are really weighing on your heart. Um, and confess all sins before God because he forgives all sins. He died for you. So I hope that answers the question. Um, that, And if you thought that, that was an uncomfortable question, you, you haven't seen the rest of this list. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. It's these. No, these are fantastic questions. This is. I don't want to discourage people from asking tough questions. These are great questions, um, and I'm sure somebody's writing a, uh, a doctoral thesis on it. says this. He says, I kind of want to know the answer to this before I get a job. Do we have to give a tithe? 
Do we give 10%, more than 10%, less? Are we to just use that to help people, or is it to be given to a church, or is it completely optional? So, yeah, um, Anonymous asks this question, and uh, a couple of verses spring to mind. Um, so first and foremost, what is a tithe? In the Old Testament, a tithe is one of these things where you're required to give. It was a, uh, it was a ceremonial law where you were required to give 10% of everything that you've got, all of your, so you can't be like, oh, well, I gave 10% of my money, but I've got like a bajillion dollars in stocks. No, you're, the idea is that out of thanksgiving to God, God's the one who gave you everything that you have, so you give back 10% to him. And this is, I mean, everything you have comes from God anyway, so you're giving back to God some of what he's given to you. And then, of course, God would use, would use these tithes uh, and, and purpose them to, uh, to glorify God and to glorify his kingdom on earth. Um, so this is an Old Testament thing. This is one of those things where a tithe was specifically 10% of everything. Uh, and this is not a law that is repeated in the New Covenant. So in the Old Covenant, this was one of those laws that was specifically given to a specific group of people, and you are not that group of people. This was a law to give, or this was a command to give 10% of everything. But in the New Testament, we have examples of people still giving tithes and offerings. They're just called tithes. Um, they're kind of grouped together, tithe, tithes and offerings. Um, and one of the greatest examples is from Luke chapter 21 uh, at the beginning. This is the widow's offering or the widow's mite. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It's this beautiful story where this widow is trusting God with everything that she has. And in this case, she's not giving 10%. According to what Jesus is saying, she gave in all that she had. And these other people, they may be giving 10%. They may be giving that exact legalistic amount of, I have to give this much, no more, no less. Um, but God here is, is saying, you know, this woman gave everything. She gave more. You know, you know, two pennies is not more than somebody who puts in like a denarii or whatever. Um, but she gave more because she gave all that she had. Percentages. You know, 100% is bigger than 10%. That's kind of, <laughs> but the thing is that she's trusting God with everything that she had. And in this example, God is commending a generous giver. God is commending somebody who is trusting God with, with all that they have. Um, this is not a command for you to necessarily give all that you have and then live with nothing and live, you know, just give everything, give everything up and quit your job and quit everything. Um, but this is God acknowledging that this person, what they did, they did it with faith. Um, and it's not the technical aspect of how many pennies she put in, but it's the fact that she trusted God that is, that is important here. In Luke uh, 12, 33, I've got this verse pulled up as well. It says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags and do not grow old with treasures, uh, with the treasure in the heavens. Let me see. Uh, do not grow old. The treasure in the heavens that does not does not fail, where no thief approaches you and no moth destroys. So this is kind of a, a counter to the people who who wanted to 
to basically be rich on earth. And God's saying, well, you're not, you can't take it with you, right? There are treasures in heaven and they're, they're never going to be destroyed or stolen. Whereas the things on this earth, your money may run out. Your money may be stolen. Somebody may break in and take your possessions or destroy them or something like that. Um, so again, this is, uh, this is, be, this is God telling people, and this is all this is all kind of getting around to answering the question. It's a, it's a helical sort of way to get to the question. Um, so this is God again telling people to to trust in those heavenly things and not to focus too much on these earthly things. Acts chapter two verses forty four through forty seven says this, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Mm, sounds like communism to me. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay, okay. <laughs> all right, that's a joke. It's a joke. You can you can stop laughing now. Uh, Acts, yeah. They believed and they were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they as any had need. And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And this is this beautiful picture of... Um, of how the Christians in this early Christian church, um, and okay, so I made the joke about communism, and there's a little ring of truth in it, and I don't want you to think that I mean it in necessarily a political sense. What happened here is these people volunteered, they were not forced by their government to do this. It's not a government top-down political system. This is a system where the people, where the people were Christians, and as Christians, they acted like a family. If a, a Christian husband and wife are married, for example, it is a good thing that all of their possessions are mutually owned, even, even, even down to their, to their own bodies. This goes back to the, the, creation, the creation account. And this is, you know, the husband is giving his body to his wife, and the wife is giving her body to the husband, and they're honoring each other, and they're, you know, they're loving each other, and everything between them is shared. Um, the house is both of theirs. The money is it belongs to all of them. This is all. This is a, a group of uh, both a, a description of beautiful cooperation and love, but this is also kind of an example of this is how the ideal Christian church should work. This is why Christianity is so involved in adoption, in charity, in the foster care system, in uh, in hospitals, in in education. This is why. The Christian community uh, is had throughout history was so involved in trying to help others and trying to you know trying to take in the orphans and trying to take in the widows and the people who couldn't provide for themselves. Uh, this is God providing means for some Christians to take care of each other. So going back to going back to the original question, um, how much uh, do we have to give a tithe? Do we give ten percent more or less? Do we give it to people? Give it to a church? You, as a Christian, should be acting out of the generosity of your heart. This is an imperative. God wants you to be a generous Christian. God wants you to be a loving Christian. God wants you to love your neighbor. And loving your neighbor looks different in different situations. But it very frequently looks like somebody supporting somebody else. Maybe they're volunteering their time maybe they're volunteering maybe they're serving on the church council or they're serving as an elder or they're 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 in choir and they're and they're giving to god uh with their songs and their praise 
maybe this person has been given a lot financially and they're, they're a donor for the church or they're a trustee or they're somebody um, you know, who, who helps a seminary and provides buildings or, or, or work or all of these other things. God has given an abundance of things to his people and uh, out of love for God and love for one another, we are given examples and given commands um, to be generous and to love one another. And again, this is not the Old Testament tithe where it's, all right, exactly legalistic 10%. You have to follow this. But this is rather, you should act with generosity, with compassion, with love, with grace and mercy toward one another. And you know what that looks like better than anyone except God. Um, so for you, in your case, is it you putting your two mites in the box, your two pennies in the box? Is it uh, you donating, you know, donating your time to come work at the church and pull weeds and mow the lawn and stuff like that. There's no specific list of you only have to do this much and no more. This is you have to love God and you have to love your neighbor. These are those, you know, those two, those two great commandments that you're supposed to follow. And God gives you the freedom to manage your possessions and to manage your time. You are free in Christ to figure out how you can best go about loving God and loving your neighbor. So don't get fixated on the specific details. Does this have to go to the church? Does this have to go to this charity? Does this have to go to a person? Does it have to be 10%? Don't focus on the specific details. Focus on the underlying intent. What does God desire you to do? What has God given you? What has God given you the ability to do, the ability to give? Um, the wisdom to manage you know, your money or your, your property. Um, and then just work from there. Work, work with love. Work out of a desire to love. And you'll figure out kind of what that looks like. And again, I mean, you're not gonna, you don't do it perfectly. You won't love your neighbor perfectly. You won't love God perfectly. That's what repentance and forgiveness is for. But as a Christian, your desire should be and will be to love God and love your neighbor. So go for it. Go for it. Be a generous giver. Be a, be a, be a generous friend and uh, be a generous family member. Be a generous lover of God and, and lover of your neighbor. But you're going to know what that looks like. So don't, don't worry too much about the details. Just you've been given your marching orders. You've been given the commander's intent. So now it's your job to figure out how exactly that happens in your life. And in all things, you trust in God. To God alone be the glory. 